the most ghoulish greetings to you, my ghouls and vamps. Thank you, as always, for stopping by, making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes, of course, are courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. Today, we venture on over to Ludgate Hill in London. There stands proudly an old cathedral known as St. Paul's Cathedral. It is a place that throughout the centuries has hosted the celebration of kings and queens, royalty weddings like that of Princess Diana, and mourned the loss of life by having funerals here, like for Winston Churchill, a huge fan of the cathedral, and Margaret Thatcher, and just so many others. As I was doing research on St. Paul's, I found an itinerary, as it is still a very active location to go to, whether for services or for sightseeing. So for those in the area who are interested in going, their doors open at 10 a.m. Now things might have changed with COVID, but it used to be they would open at 10 a.m. for sightseeing, and at 12.30 there's the Eucharist, Last chance for sightseeing is at 4 p.m. And then at 5 is the evening prayer and it closes down at 5.30. So I believe if you are going just to explore St. Paul's, you need to pay a fee. But if you go for the services, Mass is actually for free. So that's kind of cool. Now the cathedral you see today is the fifth to be built on site. Dedicated to London's patron, St. Paul. The first church that was built here dates back to 604. Wow. I mean, to me, that's just absolutely incredible. That's one thing I really want to do is just go to the UK and see all the old buildings going from past medieval times. I mean, to me, that's really impressive stuff. So St. Paul's Cathedral is the seat of the Bishop of London and serves as the mother church of the Diocese of London. The fifth and most current St. Paul's was built between 1675 and 1710. It is one of the most famous and most recognizable sites in London today. At 365 feet tall, it dominated London's sky as being the tallest building in London, and it would stay that way for over 253 years, from 1710 all the way up to 1963. When Millbank Tower is built at 387 feet. That did not last long, though. I mean, come on, you guys. You want to be the tallest building in town? You got to go higher than an extra 22 feet. Pfft, that's nothing. The following year, the BT Tower is built, and it's a whopping 581 feet tall. Today, I believe the tallest building in London is the Shard at 1,016 feet. It's a 72-story building. It's the tallest building in the United Kingdom, the seventh tallest in Europe, and the second tallest freestanding structure in the United Kingdom. So, pretty cool stuff. Wonder if it's haunted. Maybe it'll be in an episode. <laughs> now, today, St. Paul's Cathedral remains the highest dome in the world, 560 steps worth. It's supported by eight large arches and in 66,000 tons. This site and its surroundings, that being London, have seen ferocious fires. Fires that claimed many, many lives and several businesses. St. Paul's has seen fires in 962. 
1087, 1135, 1666, also known as the Great Fire of London, which left the cathedral pretty much gutted, and in 1940, also known as the Second Great Fire of London. I will get more into the fire shortly. If it wasn't fire, it was lightning. In 1561, the cathedral's spire was destroyed when it was struck by lightning. By the time the Great Fire of London came roaring through town, the cathedral had already been damaged by two other fires. Five years before the fire in 1666 came through, one of the most highly acclaimed English architects in history, Sir Christopher Wren, had made plans to replace the destroyed tower with a dome. Then, eight days before the Great Fire of London occurred, Wren attends a meeting at St. Paul's, not knowing eight days later it will be destroyed. At 8 p.m., a witness named William Taswell sees a lone burning ember land in a gap on the roof, which sadly causes the fire to spread to the supporting timbers within the cathedral. It's said that the time period of the cathedral catching on fire and the lead roof melting into the street, which prevented the firefighters from coming and trying to put out the inferno, was 30 short minutes. Several days after the fire, the same witness who saw that lone ember, William, he is searching the ruins and he comes upon a ghastly sight. Near the east walls of St. Paul's, a human body presented itself to me. An old decrepit woman had fled here for safety, imagining the flames would not have reached her there. Her clothes were burnt and every limb reduced to a coal. Every limb reduced to a coal. Oh, God, I can't even imagine. And this woman was not the only one to think that the cathedral would be a safe haven. Many have considered this location safe. With its thick stone walls, they thought it would be immune to fires. Another sad discovery, Lord Chancellor of England, Robert de Braybrook, who was buried in the cathedral's crypt well over two and a half centuries earlier, mind you, well... His corpse was exposed from the fire. But you know what? More on the crypts just a little later. A French watchmaker named Robert Hubert admitted to starting the fire. What we now know in history as being the Great Fire of London. He claims to have thrown a fireball through the window of Pudding Lane. He was executed by hanging. Hubert was described as a man who possibly had mental issues and he was just not in his right mind. Many believe that he was innocent. He claims to have thrown the fireball on September 4th. Well, this was two days after the fire had already started. This story of his just didn't make sense and it just kept changing. He would change it left and right and then he tried to claim that there were other people involved and... In October, they transfer Hubert to the White Lion Prison, where crowds upon crowds of people line the street, throwing anything from manure to to stones and rotting vegetables at the soon-to-be-executed man. Jack Ketch, the executioner, well, he's paid 11 pounds that day to do the deed. Back then, the executioner was allowed a portion of the rope used in the execution to auction off. He did this in a nearby tavern. Now, Hubert's body would hang up there, dancing above the gallows, for one hour before it was actually cut down. Now, many believe to this very day that he was indeed innocent. 
I mean, is it just me? But someone who, you know, watched way too much, and who still watches way too much true crime TV, but do not admit to something you have not done. If he was innocent and executed, that really sucks. Like, for sure. But he admits to doing this horrible fire. And he's an innocent man. He basically dug his own grave when that false confession poured out from his mouth. And it's sad. It is. It's sad if he indeed was innocent and he died for this crime that he had nothing to do with. So the Great Fire of London has happened and it, in its wake, it destroyed 87 parish churches. Of course, our St. Paul's Cathedral and over 13,200 homes. In 1668, a little short of two years after the Great Fire, Dean William Sancroft pens a letter to Sir Christopher Wren, agreeing and allowing his request he made uh -uh, five years earlier and just days before the fire to build a new cathedral. It is finally complete Christmas Day in 1771. And St. Paul's Cathedral, known as Old St. Paul's Cathedral when it was destroyed, was not the only cathedral or house of worship to be built, rebuilt, let's say, by Wren after the fire. He's credited for rebuilding 52 churches in London after the Great Fire. That's damned impressive. And while the cause of the Great Fire of London in 1666 remains unknown, the cause of the Second Great Fire of London would not be so much of a mystery. The year is 1940. The beginning of World War II, a war that my grandpa fought in, including the Battle of the Bulge, the Blitz, one of the most destructive air raids to take place during the Second World War, a German bombing campaign against the United Kingdom. Prior to this event, the cathedral had been struck by bombs in two incidents. The first happened on September 12, 1940, when a time-delayed bomb had hit the cathedral. A bomb disposal detachment succeeds in removing it, leaving behind about uh, a 100-foot crater. The second took place October 10, 1940. In this case, the strike destroyed the high altar. Then again, after the second great fire, which I will get into in a moment, the third one was on April 17, 1941. Now, this strike left a huge gaping hole in the floor just right above the crypt. Now, back to the Second Great Fire of London. While it is believed that six people died from the first one back in 1666, a whopping 160 people died in the 1940 fire. Out of the 160 people that died, 12 of those were firefighters and over 250 were injured. In late December 1940, 100,000 bombs fall all throughout London. The raid specifically was chosen for this area due to all the buildings and the churches especially. The bombs were filled with magnesium, which started fires throughout London. The area the fires affected were a hell of a lot greater than the first Great London Fire. London Fire Brigade Sam Chavu says this of the fire. By the time we finished tackling the fires on the roof of the exchange, the sky, which was ebony black, when we first got there was now changing to a yellow orange colour. It looked like there was some enormous circle of fire including St Paul's churchyard. 
So this is from the mouth of a man who had a front row seat to these horrific and deadly fires. And another man who fought these fires, well, that was a Leonard Rossiman. He joined the Auxiliary Fire Service at the beginning of World War II. He started painting. His inspiration was the fires that he had fought. He lived to see 98 years, and he died not too long ago, actually, back in 2012. That night in particular, Leonard was fighting hard. He, like so many others, are relieved from duty, while others come to fight the fire. Moments after he's relieved from his post, a wall collapses in the area that he had just been at. It traps and buries at least two firefighters, and the fireman who specifically took Leonard's place dies that night shortly after Leonard leaves. Meanwhile, Herbert, a chief photographer, is getting epic shots of the fire and the town it's devouring. He explains the situation specifically a picture he takes of the cathedral. I focused at intervals as the great dome loomed up through the smoke. The glare of many fires and sweeping clouds of smoke kept hiding the shape. Then a wind sprang up. Suddenly the shining cross, dome and towers stood out like a symbol in the inferno. The scene was unbelievable. In that moment or two, I released my shutter. And yet another person who witnessed the Second Great Fire of London, Ernest Taylor Pyle, an American journalist and war correspondent. He observed the raid and fires from a balcony not too far away. Into the dark, shadowed spaces below us while we watched, whole batches of incendiary bombs fell. We saw two dozen go off in two seconds. They flashed terrifically then quickly simmered down to pinpoints of dazzling white, burning ferociously. The greatest of all fires was directly in front of us. Flames seemed to whip hundreds of feet into the air. Pinkish-white smoke ballooned upward in a great cloud, and out of this cloud there gradually took shape, so faintly at first that we weren't sure what we saw correctly. The gigantic dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's was surrounded by fire, but it came through. It stood there in its enormous proportions, growing slowly clearer and clearer, the way objects take shape at dawn. It was like a picture of some miraculous figure that appears before peace, hungry soldiers on a battlefield. Now, this man was a phenomenal writer and storyteller, and he enjoyed writing, specifically when it came to the war. He was very much loved, Ernest, better known as Ernie, he had several premonitions regarding his own death. He was traveling with the United States Army's 305th Infantry Regiment to a small island northwest of Okinawa. Before landing, he had sent off a letter to several friends predicting that I might not survive the war. They arrived the 17th day of April in 1945. The area had unfortunately not been cleared of enemy soldiers. They did a search and it seemed all well and dandy, but the following day, Pyle is driving in a jeep with Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Coolidge headed to the command post when they are suddenly caught 
in gunfire by a Japanese machine gun. The men dive into a ditch. Coolidge notes that A little later, Pyle and I raised up to look around. Another burst hit the road over our heads. I looked over at Ernie and he had been hit. One of those Japanese machine gun bullets had entered Pyle's temple just under the helmet and death was instantaneous. He was sadly right when he said, I might not survive the war. In 1949, Pyle's remains were some of the first to be interred at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. Back to the Second Great Fire of London, Sir Winston Churchill made some phone calls insisting that firefighters use their resources at St. Paul's. The cathedral must be saved. In more recent times, 2019 terrorist Sophia Shaki had her terrorist eyes aimed on the cathedral and had previously been in the old cathedral taking pictures of the interior. To untrained eyes, she's just your typical tourist hanging out, checking out the digs, taking pictures, taking in all the history. Really, she is a British woman who is believed to be the first lone female ISIS lone wolf terrorist attacker to attempt a terrorist attack in the United Kingdom. Thankfully, she was busted and sentenced to life imprisonment last year, the hellhole we call 2020. And it wasn't all fires and lightning strikes and foiled terrorist attacks. Here's some interesting facts when it comes to St. Paul's Cathedral. It has had a choir since 1127. The St. Paul bells are the second largest ring of bells in the world. Among the bells are two they named Great Tom and Great Paul. The latter hasn't rang for many a year. It's in need of desperate repair. Great Thomas sounded for royal death, the death of royalty, including Queen Elizabeth in 2002, and bishops and lord mayors, and one special exception in 1881, when United States James Garfield was assassinated. Now, let's get to the tombs and the haunts, shall we, my lovelies? The St. Paul's Cathedral Crypt is quite quite phenomenal. It contains well over 200 memorials and several burials, at least 83 that we know of, ranging from composers to lord keepers. You got your generals and priests. We got the lord barons, the architects, the bishops, the earls and the countesses, and so many others. The crypt here is the largest in Western Europe, extending to the entire length of the cathedral. Now, Sir Christopher Wren was interred in 1723, and on his crypt is written, Meaning, reader, if you seek this monument, look around you. The largest monument in the cathedral is that of Arthur Wesley, better known as the First Duke of Wellington. He served two times as prime minister. He was a soldier. He was among the ones who ended the Napoleonic Wars. The statue is of, well, Wellesley, with his beloved horse, Copenhagen. Many of the people thought it was 
kind of inappropriate to have a statue of a horse in a place of worship, but I mean, come on, people, it's a horse. It's not like it, I mean, I could think of a lot more inappropriate things to put in a church. Finally, the gorgeous piece was installed in 1912. Meanwhile, the Duke is buried in the crypt down below the cathedral. His next-door neighbor, the tomb of Horatio, Lord Nelson, known also as First Duke of Bronte, Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson, and the First Viscount Nelson. It's a gorgeous marble sarcophagus, originally made for Cardinal Wolseley, an English statesman and a Catholic bishop, but he had fallen from favor, so you're out of here, mister. Spend eternity somewhere else. Hit the bricks, sweetheart. So another is John Donne, an English poet, a soldier who became cleric in the Church of England under royal patronage. He was made dean of St. Paul's Cathedral from 1621 to 1631. Before his death, he actually posed for his very own funerary statue. Wrapped in a burial shroud, standing on a funeral urn, which was carved around uh, 1630. Another neat piece you can find in the North Choir Isle is a limestone statue of a mother and a child. It's a carving done by Henry Moore, who is below, resting eternally in the crypts. Someone else who calls St. Paul's Cathedral their forever home is Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, who served in South Africa, Ireland, and Burma, and the War Office in London. Well, his story's kind of a sad one. One fateful day, he is at a ceremony. All's good. He's in his full military garb. He ends the day, and it was a good one. He leaves, and he goes home at 36 Eaton Place. He opens the door to be ambushed by at least two armed men. They approach from behind, and they shoot the field marshal at least nine times. He dies on his own doorstep. He is buried here at St. Paul's. This is obviously just a mere handful of the people buried at the cathedral. And like in Egypt, there was a lot of treasures and priceless artifacts and antiques in the tombs and crypts below. But sadly, in 1810, there was a gigantor of a robbery where most of the items were actually stolen and never recovered. I mean, that just... So heartbreaking. And I hate that those assholes got away with doing that. You know, it's horrible. So throughout the centuries, there have been strange happenings. People reported seeing apparitions and experiencing other types of paranormal phenomena. One resident spirit is known as the Whistler. He's often out of tune and just sounds really sad and depressed. This is believed to be the spirit of an elderly clergyman, often seen dressed in old-fashioned clerical garb with long, gray, flowing hair. Before he is seen, people usually will experience a cold spot or get the chills. They'll just, something's there. They'll, they'll feel that. He wanders throughout the chapel, sadly just whistling to himself. He is often seen disappearing to a certain wall of the cathedral. And a while back, that particular wall was excavated where they discovered a hidden door. They opened it and it revealed a narrow winding staircase that leads to a secret room. 
What was this room used for? What's the connection between the secret passageway and the Whistler spirit? In more recent times, a Russian tourist was sightseeing the gorgeous chapel, and I believe taking part in the services for the day as other people were sitting in the pews. She takes a picture, and she really thinks kind of nothing of it. Later on, she is looking at her pictures, as many often do, and she is surprised to see an apparition of a man standing a couple aisles ahead of her. Can this be the Whistler taking part in the evening mass services? When interviewed, she says, Конечно, это было привидение. Никто не стоял передо мной, когда я фотографировала. And if you don't understand Russian, it means, of course it's a ghost. There was no one in front of me when I took that picture. The Whistler can often be seen or sensed at the All Souls Chapel, which is located at the west end of the cathedral. And he is not the only one who haunts the old cathedral, you guys. Elliot O'Donnell, an Irish writer and a paranormal investigator, writes about two other ghosts who possibly haunt St. Paul's. He wrote several books between 1904 through 1958, mostly about the paranormal and the supernatural. True haunting tells was his thing. I like him already. Elliot was well-loved and he was very popular. In his 1932 book, Ghosts of London, which, by the way, you can get on Amazon for $13.57 for the paperback, or if you want to spend a tiny bit more, you can get the hardback for $589.77. Yeah, yikes. No thanks, I'll stick with the soft cover. $13.57 or $589? Hmm, uh, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> So one of the things he writes about is of an American woman who was accompanied by a gentleman in 1899. They're visiting the cathedral, and as they're walking down the central aisle, they're frightened as they are greeted by a great black cloud. This cloud raises up from the floor and ascends about 20 feet into the air before vanishing right in front of their very shocked eyes. O'Donnell had visited St. Paul's that very same day. He himself had not seen the incident, but he was there when they were there, and he immediately took interest in what the couple had to say. They had a lengthy conversation, and the woman told the writer that the cloud seemed to be alive. Another story coming from Elliot about the cathedral is a another woman who had an experience. She's in one of the aisles when she notices a woman a couple pews ahead of her. She's on her knees, but she's not praying as one might be in place of worship. She's actually kind of looking for something. She then suddenly just vanishes. Well, a couple days later, the woman who witnessed the apparition vanish is back at St. Paul's when she claims to see yet the same woman in the same aisle, and yeah, you guessed it, she's kneeling down looking for something yet again. The living woman is intrigued, and she starts to slowly approach the phantom woman. She suddenly feels a tap on the shoulder from behind. She turns around to see not a single person nearby. At this point, she has had uh, quite enough and makes a quick exit from the cathedral. With so much history 
and dating back so many centuries. Is it really surprising that St. Paul's Cathedral has resident spirits? It's amazing that they kept rebuilding on the same spot destroyed by the Great Fire of London, survives the Second Great Fire of London, air raids, plotted terrorist attacks, lightning, and so much more. Really amazing stuff. I would love to go check this spot out sometime along with several other amazing places in London. Maybe someday. A shout out to my amazing voiceovers, many from across the pond, Ian Vero, Gary Fields, Fitz, my dad, Jerry Morrow, my cousin, Bryce Kolb, and Annie Levin. You guys, thank you so much again. It's greatly appreciated. Now, did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. You can binge listen right now by hitting up any of those podcast platforms such as iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, Podbean, wherever you may roam. To listen to your other phantomly delicious podcast, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Sunshine Coast, Australia, Fort Thomas, Kentucky, Aurora, Colorado, Wigan, England, and Monroe, Texas. Thanks again, you guys. You all are rock stars in my book. Are you interested in becoming a voiceover for a future episode? Do you have an idea about an episode? Or do you want to share an experience or two or an investigation in a future episode? Hey, if you're shy, you could write it down. I'll read it myself. You could stay anonymous. I could change your voice. Let's make it happen. Email me at paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook under Tessa Morrow or Paranormal Prowlers. See you next week.